Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. This is your host, Ryan Kennedy, and I am very excited for today's episode, which will be a deep dive into the single most important area for your health, your sleep. I've been telling my patients for years, high quality sleep is the greatest health and performance practice that you could possibly prioritize and literally the foundation, the bedrock of everything else. And so I brought on Molly Eastman, who is the creator of Sleep is a Skill, which is a company that optimizes people's sleep through a new, unique blend of technology, accountability, and behavior change. So Molly, welcome to the podcast. Ah, well, thank you so much. And you're preaching to the choir, the fact that you led with one of the more important things that you can do for your health and well-being, being sleep. Uh, you're my you're my people. <laughs> I mean, I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter how perfect your diet is, your training plan, how many supplements you take. If your sleep is crap, you are going to suffer. Like you're working an uphill battle. So it really is the the starting point with all of the people I see in my practice. Uh, so I'm curious with all the coaching you've done, what do you see as like the top thing people do wrong when it comes mm. to their sleep? Absolutely. So one, uh, underscoring what you said there, one of the things that we see all the time is that people are often looking for the supplement, the gadget, the what have you, and those are wonderful. And yet beginning with some of these foundational practices to support sleep can often make the big difference. And the question is, where do we begin? Um, okay. So where I often have us begin is begin at what is even the problem? Why are we seeing such a kind of Mount Everest climb of the uh, numbers of people struggling with sleep. And we can quantify that in various ways, whether it's the uh, number of people ongoingly over the past few decades that we're seeing with things like sleep disorders um, that we're seeing with even things like as innocuous as Google trends results, you know, so search terms of seeking out sleep support, sleep help, sleep remedies, prescriptions, et cetera. And we're just seeing this climb in the struggle. So why are people struggling? Well, one of the places that I often begin is what I point to as kind of the indoor issue. So meaning that there was a study done out of the EPA back in 2001 and found that the average person was spending around 93% of their time in an indoor environment, breaking down to inside or in automobiles. Um, and so why that's important is that the more indoors we're going, the more we're under kind of these faux environmental cues that are confusing to our circadian rhythm um, and our circadian rhythm kind of being that 24 hour rhythm and uh, has a fallout of physiological proper, uh, processes that then affect our results with certainly, of course, our sleep wake. That's what most people think of circadian rhythm, sleep. But then many of us don't realize how our circadian health affects all kinds of other elements of our health and well-being. I'm sure you've spoken all about these things. Um, and just notably, you know, our hormonal balance, our uh, cognition, our emotional health, um, immunity, more, right? So there's a lot of things that get impacted if our circadian health is off. So because of the fact that we become these kind of indoor zoo animals, that we can make the argument that most of us are dealing with some sort of circadian disruption. And what we find in this, the way this has been quantified is that the average person by day is under lighting that is around a hundred times too dim by day 
And in the evening, about 100 times too bright as compared to even the brightest moonlit environments that we would have been exposed to in our past. Now, just saying, just thinking about what that means, that we are living upside down. So our days are too dark, our nights are too bright. So we want to flip that. Why is that so important, this whole lighting piece, is that if we think about the things that impact our circadian rhythm, it's often these things called zeitgeibers or time givers. Now, time givers are really, really important because they tell the body something about what time it is and what to be doing when. Now, light dark is the most powerful, important zeitgeiber that we can come across. So if you get nothing else out of what I'm saying, beginning with your light, dark environment is absolutely one of the places to begin because that will also have effects on how you feel, on the types of thoughts you're thinking. Turns out thoughts are on a circadian rhythm and kind of diurnal rhythm. We have different thoughts by day than we do at night. Uh, so this can get really fascinating. There's many things that impact our circadian rhythm, but what you want to do is figure out how can you have brighter days uh, and darker nights. And that's an anchoring process to your circadian rhythm is having that bright light exposure by day, first thing in the morning. Um, and this does get more complicated. You and I kind of chatted uh, before we hit record about depending on where you are on the globe can impact how long you need to be outside. Uh, what season it is can impact how long and the type of light that you're exposed to. So it gets really layered. But the takeaway is we want consistent wake-up timing about seven days a week because sleep loves consistency. And so you want to have that consistent wake-up time largely about seven days a week and that you're pairing that same wake-up with getting up and out into your outdoor environment to get that bright light in your eyes because it's so closely connected to that super chiasmatic nucleus, um, you know, kind of positioned behind the eyes that it seems to be markedly important to get that um, not with sunglasses, hats, et cetera. So that would be our first behavioral practice to bring in. Yeah. I mean, it's the domestication of humans. It's this exactly. it's disconnected from the natural elements and environment that have enabled us to thrive for millennia. And now we're living in these boxes and cubicles and indoor environments. That's total, uh, totally throwing things off. So what do you tell people who say, oh, Molly, that sounds great, but you know, it's freezing cold outside at the time of this recording, we're in January. And uh, I open up my blinds, I open up my curtains, I'm getting natural light in through the windows. Um, you know, what, what's your feedback there? Okay. Uh, great point. Because all of these things, uh, when we talk about sleep optimization, it can be kind of novel. And, you know, I call my company sleep is a skill for a reason, because I believe in our modern environment, um, it really has become a skill set to understand what it takes to sleep well. So you could just get lost in the weeds and the learning of this, but it's the practical application, the actually doing of the thing that makes the real measurable difference. So how do we do the thing when it's, you know, yucky out or, you know, wherever we might be, we're in Canada and it's, there's limited access or the power of the sun is different at different times. What do we do? Um, well, a couple things that become important. One, 
We want to get attuned to understanding what our light environment is and things that we might be up against depending on our kind of health geography. So where we live. Now, personally, I grew up in Maine, you know, right on the border of Canada. I uh, went to school in Syracuse, also kind of on the border of Canada, and then lived in Manhattan for over a decade. Uh, so in these Northeast winters, and I understand that it can be very uncomfortable to ensure that we're physically getting out side consistently. So what do we do about that? Well, one, um, we can have a mindset shift and understand that if we are having that cold exposure, you can make the argument that that could be uh, beneficial to our sleep results. Why? Well, one of the findings that we understand more fairly recently, some people still don't know, is that there are many ways to produce melatonin. And we you know, often think of the pituitary gland, but there's also mitochondrial-based production of melatonin, which uh, we might not have known about. So what are some of the ways to support healthy mitochondrial function? One facet is cold exposure. Um, and so being exposed to the cold could be protective and supportive of that process. And then downstream could help the fact that we are able to produce sufficient melatonin in the evenings. Now I know that's a longer way to think about it, but if we think there could be benefits to us being exposed to the cold therapy in the morning, that could be a, a shift of how we're thinking about it and versus fighting it, we're embracing it in the morning. Um, now I will tell you just on a kind of funny takeaway when I lived in New York city, I did some really wacky things to get myself cold, uh, to get myself both cold exposure and sunlight exposure in the morning. There would be times when I would open up the windows and I would be covered in like, you know, blankets and everything and literally just peek my head out. If it's a busy day, I got stuff to do and I still want to get that bright light exposure. I would, it would look weird sometimes. Um, even the, if you think about the dog walkers that just are getting themselves walking around a couple, you know, laps around the block or what have you, that's still beneficial. So those are ways that you can just kind of, uh, set yourself up powerfully. Now there are still benefits to being in an environment that does have bright light from behind windows. We see that out of studies that look at um, patients in hospitals and kind of their uh, release time as far as being expedited seemingly by being more circadian aligned. And so that's from being in rooms that have windows present. Um, but if we're talking about optimization, we find in certain studies that it can take anywhere from 50 to 100 times longer to reset our master clock from behind a window than by just physically getting ourselves outside just with that unadulterated light because, uh, you know, I've got all these windows behind me in this, in, you know, our recording. Um, and so if I was to rest on my laurels and only get bright light exposure from behind these windows, I would be getting a different type of light than I'd be present to if I physically got outside. So the more I think we learn about the physics of light, it can be helpful. Now, if you're in a car, you can simply roll down the window to get that unadulterated light for a dosing of that Ideally, too, prioritizing some of that sunrise time, if possible, because that does have some of that infrared light present in it, tells us something about what time it is, what to be doing when. Certainly, that early morning light seems to have a lot of benefits for resetting of that master clock. Um, so that's those are some things to be aware of. A couple apps that could be helpful. One is the Circadian app. I really like that one to help bring about more of this alignment with our circadian rhythm and in our and our behaviors, because we can get 
get into, there's certainly more things that you can do that tell the body something about what time it is. Um, so light dark is one of the most important, but then you go down and there are things like your temperature timing, your meal timing, your exercise timing, your drug timing, and then it can get into other realms of things like your thought timing and other things that impact our circadian health. That's really interesting. I'm, um, you know, I know the window glass can reduce the intensity and distort some of the spectrum, you know, with all the different types of low E type glass that people put in, in homes and buildings. Uh, I didn't realize it was 50 to hundred times longer. That's definitely pretty extreme. And now for minimum effective dose, I usually tell people five to 10 minutes getting outside, yeah. Full, you know, exposed, obviously that's going to increase on in a cloudy day. It's going to be a little different based on time of year, proximity to the equator. Is that about in line with what you suggest for people that are in a hurry or just wanting to get the benefits in the least amount of time possible because they're freezing or they just have other things they have to get to? Yes. Okay. So a couple of things. One about the 50 to hundred times longer piece. Um, that's an important component. And it doesn't seem to be a linear response in that, okay, so I'll just sit in front of the window longer. It doesn't seem to quite work like that. Um, so it does really behoove us to, if available to us, getting that, you know, moving ourselves from behind that window outside, because um, it does seem to have such that huge beneficial effect. Um, and I would say as far as the amount of time there's a couple things. One, from a behavioral change perspective, because that's a lot of the work we're doing is how to make the argument for ourselves to make these changes, but fit it into our you know fast-paced lives. So yes, even if you're getting out there for a few minutes, that would still have a lot of benefits. Also, just to see to it that we do and we don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, because it could very easily become this like audacious thing. And then we say, oh, that's just not practical. I'm not going to do it. And then we don't do any of it. Um, so yes, having some of those benefits, of, there are benefits absolutely to getting out for those five to 10 minutes. Now, just knowing a couple things. One, um, some of the things I hear from people is they'll say, oh, well, listen, I'm in Seattle and it's cloudy out. Why bother? Uh, and so, but instead what we'd like to think about is when it's cloudy out, it's still going to be often much brighter than it would still be inside. And the only difference is on those days, the true optimal piece would be to stay out a little bit longer because it is a little bit hindered of the brightness. So if you can have that available to you, that'd be great. But even the biggest goal is to keep the action going. Like if you think of BJ Fogg, kind of the godfather, right? Or father of some of these um, habitual uh, processes that we can bring in, those small incremental uh, approaches and in bringing this into our lifestyle have those benefits. Um, but if you get outside and do that, even just those small photons of light can be impactful from more of a quantum biology perspective um, and can make that difference. Now, another thing that you could do to get this more in our bones of you know the specifics of this, um, you can download different apps largely for free or a couple bucks that will tell you the measurement of the light in your environment. So a couple of those are like light meter, Lux, um, different. They're often for photography, but you put them up. So you hold up your smartphone in whatever environment you're in and find out what the average Lux output is. Now, some of the average Lux output in an indoor environment is usually sub about a thousand Lux. This is a big deal because then if you go outside, even on that proposed cloudy day, 
often it's still going to be closer to 5,000, 10,000 lux. And then on a summer day near the equator, we could get very high, 100,000 lux. So if we are thinking of the huge disparity, um, this is really important to signal to our body because this will affect hormone production, how alert you are by day, the quality of your experience of, uh, of your cognition, your experience of life gets altered by this drug-like effect. We want to think of light and dark like a drug. I mean, morning sun, it's, it's the shit. I, I actually <laughs> yes. call my house morning sun sanctuary, Molly, because I, well, one, it's east facing and it's on a hill. So it overlooks like the mountains and has a nice view. And you mm -hmm. can see the sunrise perfectly coming right over the horizon. And uh, it's, it's absolutely epic. Um, so people need to prioritize morning sun for sure. Now, when it comes to um, a couple other things I want to dive into to move on from the, the morning sun, because we really have two areas, right, that we can adjust. We can sure. adjust our environment. We can adjust our lifestyle and our behaviors. And so when it comes to environments for sleeping, I always tell people dark, cool, quiet, minimize electronics, you know, as far as like optimizing your sleeping environment. Do you have anything you would add to that list? Yes. Um, so I would think about my evening environment, my sleep environment. And then I would be thinking as well. So one of the things we do like in our cohorts and what have you is we'll have people taking pictures of both their sleep environment, uh, but also the environment that they're spending, you know, hours before bed, because that's where often we are accruing some of that melatonin production in the lead up or setting the stage to be able to sufficiently do that. So meaning, um, one thing that's, I think, really noteworthy and tells the story is just last year, uh, 248 circadian scientists referencing almost 2,700 peer-reviewed papers are now calling for warning labels on light bulbs when used at night. And why this is noteworthy is that they're citing correlations from simply what feels like the innocuous use of light bulbs at night, plain old, you know, 60-watt LED, what have you, light bulbs. Um, resulting in a certainly poor sleep. So the sleep-wake function getting thrown off, but it also seems to impact things like cancer, fertility, mental health, obesity, and more of our overall health metrics um, of, or health uh, kind of uh, components being impacted by simply the presence of normal lights in our, in our evening environment. So what does that look like? Well, then my husband often calls me like Darth Vader because our our lighting system in our evenings are often red hued. They are, you can maybe do orange hue. That could be another option. Any of these lighting options that take out that blue content, that large blue band, because traditional LED lights, because now um, incandescent lights were made illegal last year in 2023. So most of us are under LED light sources. So you want to make sure that you're shifting that. So that would be one piece to play off of the light dark element. So you want to make sure that Post-sunset, ideally, you're shifting over to those more red-hued lights. Um, second piece, a really impactful uh, component of our circadian health is our temperature. So you could be starting to lower the temperature in your environment uh, you know, while you're hanging out in your living room leading up to bed. That can be really helpful. Um, another component is why that's a big piece is that the dropping of our body temperature helps to set the stage for um, the ability to fall asleep and stay asleep and produce more of that melatonin. 
Now, another thing you could do, which could seem counterproductive or counterintuitive, is applying heat therapy in about the hour to two hours before bed for at least 10 minutes, um, because it does seem to show in a number of studies that that can help support oddly, the dropping of body temperature thereafter, because there seems to be this paradoxical cooling effect after the exposure of heat therapy. Um, so that paradoxical cooling effect seems to be helpful for the ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. Now, that process can be really helpful. So if you have available in your budget, it is a bit of an investment, but if you can bring in cooling mattress toppers, um, that can also be really helpful for the quality of that sleep. I often see less sleep fragmentation for people on our wearables. Um, it's one of the fastest things that I see when people introduce to make a measurable change. Like I often point to where they layered in a cooling mattress topper um, and in not just the less of um, lessening of sleep fragmentation, but also often a drop in heart rate and often an improvement in HRV for many individuals. No, the the mattress cooler is a game changer, especially if you sleep with a partner where totally. women tend to like it a little warmer than men, and so that just creates not a good outcome because then uh, guys are sweating all night and women are always complaining it's too cold. So it, it totally solves that by having the two zone system, uh, and with the sleep. Uh, topper that you're describing, do you find what, what, what variants uh, change do you find works best in the evenings? Like I'll set mine, let's just say it, you know, it's colder this time of year. So I'll set it at like 68 or 70 and then I'll cool it in the first few hours. And then uh, on the back half of the night, I found if I warm it back up uh, slightly, my REM cycles tend to get a lot, quite a bit better than if I keep it, let's just yes. say 68 the whole night. Totally. A hundred percent. Um, we actually just had, uh, eight sleep on the podcast and, you know, both eight, uh, chili, all of these, anything that can get your bed cooler than it would be without is often really beneficial. But to your point, there can be some nuance. Now, eight sleep has some research around, uh, what they're trying to support of kind of this banana like shape they're calling it. Um, and to support kind of a, warmth in, in the beginning part of the night and dropping to facilitate kind of that deep sleep. Um, but then to your point, then starting to warm up in those early morning hours. And so that you're not cooling yourself out of some of your REM opportunity. Um, and then this can be also age dependent too. Sometimes, um, as we get older, we might have more thermoregulation uh, challenges at play, or for women, certainly at different stages of life, we might have difficulty with thermoregulation and different illnesses or health challenges that could be a factor. Um, so having these available can make a big difference. And if anyone's listening and being like, oh my gosh, really, do we need to have all of these fancy things in order to sleep well? Well, I'd make the argument that it could, you could argue that having cooling mattress toppers is more akin likely to how we probably slept in nature in the past, meaning that for thousands of years, uh, we likely were sleeping closer to the ground, which would have been sort of the coolest environment available. Um, and so we're mimicking more of that. So the type of bedding that most of us are in are much more foreign to the human body than we likely would have experienced in the past. So we really want to support a cool uh place to lay upon if possible yeah i uh i agree i think it's a total game changer and while a lot of people don't necessarily need it it, it certainly certainly helps in my opinion um on the topic of tracking uh sleep why do you like the o-ring more than the whoop 
Yeah, really great question. Now I love both of them and I have both of them. Um, so I work with the Oura Ring, the Whoop, BioStrap, um, some with Apple, we've used Dream, um, Garmin, Fitbit, you know, so explored all of them. Now, uh, the one of the reasons that we tend to go with Oura Ring at the moment is just from a sleep specific tracking uh, need. Now, I wouldn't get Oura Ring if you're looking to improve upon your training or what have you. It's not really where it necessarily excels, um, but it does have some decent evidence, especially with the recent update um, where they now have compared to 1500 nights against a sleep lab within a sleep lab um, and came out pretty, uh, pretty robust as far as its accuracy as compared to a sleep lab. What I mean by that is that on just about most of the sleep trackers that we're utilizing of all the data that you could be looking at, the sleep stage classifications tend to be the least accurate by far. Um, so meaning when people point to, oh, well, look at my deep sleep, look at my REM, my light sleep, et cetera. Um, that tends to be the least accurate. And for further context, even in a in-lab facility, our accuracy of our sleep tends to still be, and there's still questions, that's the gold standard, you know, with getting a PSG. And yet um, with that, it still tends to be in around the mid eighties, as far as agreement on, okay, that person's in deep sleep right now. This is REM, this is the breakdown, et cetera, et cetera. There's still questions. And so it still gets a little murky, even mm -hmm. in lab, let alone on something that's on your um, hand or wrist. So, but the fact that the, with the newest update for Aura, the fact that they did respond pretty well. They were actually at 79% agreement um, up into the low 80s. And if it's only around mid 80s for the PSG, it's still pretty good. Um, and I find that the simplicity and the user experience, the UX UI, um, seems to be quite user friendly across the board. So I've got people in their 80s wearing these, I've got, you know, and just kind of, they can jump in and also see the trends really, really easily. Um, and I also like it for the ability to understand more on the correlations of things like HRV clearly, um, and the behavioral change interventions. So we can start to very clearly make the argument that when we are eating later, for instance, um, how much that affects our sleep, uh, alcohol, THC, et cetera, it starts to show up really in a nuanced way. The other piece is that it has for my kind of more biohacker the option for the airplane mode um, so that you're getting less of the EMF hit for anyone that's concerned about that. Whereas Whoop, um, I love Whoop and yet, and I think they're doing tremendous things and really have even more things on the horizon that I'm very excited about. Um, it can just be a little bit more of an EMF hit. Uh, so if that's important to anyone to be aware, um, but they can both be great. Yeah. That's what I don't like about the Whoop or the eight sleep or some of these devices yes. is the, uh, the EMF exposure that doesn't, it, it seems like it'd be pretty easy for them to implement like an airplane mode, like a lot of these devices do. Um, I know. So I happen to right now I sleep on the, for years anyway, I've slept on the chili um, and it does have one of the lower EMF um, outputs. Uh, so it's, you know, something to be aware of. Now you can get nuts. I do have a Faraday cage if you want to be crazy. Uh, so you can put a Faraday cage around your bed, but you don't want to have things that have EMF sources within a Faraday cage. Cause then that can be even more problematic. Um, so, you know, just things to think about. Now this gets into the realm of building biology 
technology, which I imagine to be an emerging industry in the future. It's already present. It's here. And yet I would anticipate that we'll see a lot of trends within that space. Um, and the same rules apply with circadian aligned environments. So we're already seeing that happening in hospitals. So circadian aligned lighting kind of forward thinking um, hospitals, but we could see that in our building biology and in commercial spaces so that all of this kind of happens and you don't have to think about it. Right now we have to think about the lighting and changing that. We have to think about the temperature and changing that. Um, we have to think about, you know, are we going into the refrigerator and eating too late and what have you. We can change and we can set up all of this to support and facilitate that these things all kind of just happen. Yeah. You know, going into the refrigerator too late. Of all the things that I've seen in my own clinical practice, and I track, I don't know what, how many clients you have, but I've tracked probably a couple hundred people sleep yep. um, primarily with O-ring over the past few years. And the thing that always is the least expected, I guess, because people know like, hey, if I have a bunch of alcohol, it's going to impact my sleep. If yeah. I stay up too late, it's going to impact my sleep. If I, you know, have a screaming baby, uh, it's going to impact my sleep. But what people don't always recognize is the importance of meal timing and how late dinners just totally throw off your sleep quality. Uh, and and really shifting uh, your your eating window forward so that you're not fasting throughout the whole day and then backloading most of your calories, but actually quite the contrary, you're 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 front loading most of your stuff during the day back to the circadian rhythm conversation, and then how that also impacts their digestion because our microbiome operates on this this biological clock as well. Uh, so what what time of day do you typically have people aim to eat their last meal with people you work with? I love this. Um, so a couple of things. One, uh, to further echo what you shared too about the tracking of your patients. Um, that's another reason why I'm working with Aura because I do have access to their Teams platform. So I can see uh, kind of these heuristics of understanding large groups of people and some of their trends. Um, so that's really fantastic on the back end. And it gives me a lot of awareness of what are some of the things that move the needle. Meal timing is huge, 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 huge. Um, and I see it being one of probably the bigger behavioral change struggles for most people. Um, and we think about too, societally, we're just not set up to support this lifestyle at the moment. The more we can talk about these things and get people to experience how much better your sleep is when you do make some of these changes, hopefully we can change, you know, the 8 PM dinners and whatever that we might see for so many people, um, in the design of their calendars. Um, so what do we need to think about? Well, a couple of things, uh, so far, one of our more popular episodes was with Dr. Sachin Panda out of the Salk Institute over in uh, San Diego. And he came on because he's one of the foremost researchers in meal timing and its effects on our circadian health. And he does have a great book called The Circadian Code. Um, he also has an app called the On Time app. And all of these things can help facilitate bringing this into your life, learning about this more. Um, now, in his research, he points to anywhere from two to three hours before bed, having your last bite of food and the benefits of that. Now, I would absolutely say bare minimum, yes, doing that. 
I would also say anecdotally, we still need more research. And actually, I was just speaking um, on Sunday to the vice president of WHOOP and some an exciting research they're putting together where they're comparing um, last bite of food at two hours before bed, last bite of food at four hours before bed. Um, it appears as if we're trending towards benefits with a four-hour group. But I would say out of the things that I see from wearable data, and there are some studies um, to kind of back me up on this, there needs to be a lot more. Uh, that it seems that earlier than that makes such a difference. So four hours before bed, five hours before bed, and it does seem to depend on the on the person. Now, this is where I think the benefits of tracking can be really helpful because you can see the difference for yourself. Um, sure. But here's a couple other things. Circadian rhythm, intermittent fasting, fancy terms for that we're aiming to eat when the sun is out and not eating as much as when the sun has set. Now, uh, Dr. Sachin Panda spoke to this in terms of uh, it's kind of the cross or the poor relationship between if you're trying to digest and kind of turning on the pancreas, that when that's happening, that can be at odds with our body's ability to produce melatonin. So it's one reason why we might want to then move these things earlier and to your point, front loading uh, or caloric intake. I used to be someone that would be very proud of myself that I would skip breakfast and I would push everything out super late. Um, and I know many people will say, well, I'm not hungry in the morning. Well, it turns out though that our metabolic functions and we can actually experience metabolic jet lag just based on moving around all these cues, including the timing that we're eating. So you can change the signals for your body of what time you get hungry very pretty rapidly, pretty quickly. Um, and the way to do that is that we start front loading things, pushing them back and that you have your first bite of food earlier in your day and your last bite of food later in your day. What I do in practical application is more of a liner. So like a lunch dinner. So I am doing like early bird special, you know, like retirement style eating windows where I'm having my last bite of food closer to 4 PM, 5 PM latest or so for if I can, if it's available to me, if I can't do that, then I try to practice a lower volume amount of food. If I am going to be kind of at the effect of needing to go to a dinner or whatever, having less food in the evening so that you're having to digest less. What are the fallouts? What do you see on your wearable as a result? Often what we see is less sleep fragmentation. We often see a marked drop in heart rate improvement in HRV uh, when we practice some of these things. The other big thing is if people are listening and they say, oh, I tend to wake up at three a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and the frustrations. Um, often, if available, if we can bring in a continuous glucose monitor and see and take a look at even beyond the meal timing piece or in alignment with that piece, um, understanding our glucose stability, if we're having that roller coaster by day, are we then crashing in the early morning hours and then facilitating wake-ups that then we're really awake? We did a small kind of focus group with Levels Health and Aura Ring and saw some clear correlations there. Yeah, I think early dinners are the most underrated thing ever. I mean, you, there's totally. no line. You get all the discounts. Yes. You never have to make reservations. You feel amazing. You sleep great. You wake up. You feel light. You feel good. I, I'm on the 3 to 4 p.m. dinner train for the last probably five or six years. And I've been converting people slowly but surely. And once you're converted, it's the greatest thing ever. Uh, oh. it, it is hard for people to make that adjustment for sure. But I mean, you just go out to a business lunch and it's your dinner and it's other people's lunch and it's all good. And then uh, the late night dinners, for sure, I just, uh, it's it's a hard pass for me. Uh, once in a totally. great, 
but it's really just, uh, I think just eating it eight or 9 PM. It just sucks. Oh, it's awful. And a couple of things to say about that. Cause yes. Um, if anything, I will range it from as early as a 12 um, PM or so end. If I'm kind of being more, um, if I want to kind of clean up and bring a little bit of mini fast, um, and then often around like a 2 PM or what have you can be a nice sweet spot. Now for women of menstruating age, um, there can be, there could be some room to play with this where you're doing a bit of a gentle fast um and you're doing that you know kind of around the beginning of your cycle and then closer to luteal then maybe you're moving it a little bit out so it's just not as long of a fast um but when i'm talking out i'm talking like the four and five pms is now please as anyone's listening um of course you want to experiment for yourself and find what works for you but i do see massive improvements in people's stats as a result the other interesting thing that we often see when people move back that meal timing is often the elusive improvements in sleep stage classifications. Now I've shared that that's the least accurate of all the data, but from a trends perspective, um, for those people that challenge or find challenge in moving the deep sleep in particular numbers, that's one of the places that I would often have people begin is moving that back. And usually you will see some improvement in that, the richness of that sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Now back to the, the 3 a.m., 4 a.m. wake-ups. Um, this is probably the most common issue I see. Um, I have people that have trouble falling asleep, people that just get poor sleep quality, but no major wake-ups. But I'd say the most common thing I see with with some of the entrepreneurs and people I work with is the wake up at 2.30, 3, 3.30 a.m. You know, mind is racing, hard to get back to sleep. Usually at that point, they're just, they're up. And I'm curious to hear some of the top strategies. Uh, you mentioned the CGM and making sure it's not a low blood sugar cortisol spike situation that's happening. I'm curious to hear other strategies beyond some of the foundational elements that well, we already covered that sure. are more specific to that issue that you've seen work well. Okay. Um, well, a couple of things. One, when you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're kind of wee hours in the morning, one, it can be helpful to understand um, that we are seeing new research that's pointing to that kind of diurnal pattern to our thoughts. So meaning if we're diurnal creatures as human beings, we're meant to be active by day and at rest at night, and that there's kind of that two-part series and that those early morning thought patterns tend to be laden with more of this kind of stress response, depressive tendencies, and sadly, suicidality rates going up uh, during those early morning hours. I point to that, and it's actually one study is called The Mind After Midnight, and it's actually looking at the changing in kind of the flavor of the type of thoughts that you're having in those early morning hours. Um, I think that can be helpful for us to realize that it's actually a kind of biological tendency that you might be more likely to have all the worst kind of catastrophic thinking happening in those early morning hours and that it's almost by design, if you will, and that if we know about this, it can help support us in kind of making a personal agreement to not entertain or engage with some of these thoughts. I know this is easier said than done, uh, but to kind of not believe some of these thoughts that are happening in these wee hours and lest we start going down a spiraling, you know, rabbit hole of things. Um, now this is gets into more of the 
kind of esoteric conversations of some of the traditional approaches to supporting sleep. Obviously, um, most people have heard of CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, um, some strategies around how you manage thoughts in those early morning hours. Another one being ACT or ACTI, acceptance commitment therapy for insomnia. Some of these are um, a little less known. That's a great book that I like for that. It's called The Sleep Book, and it has a lot of practices of how to practice acceptance, even if you don't necessarily want to be awake at three in the morning, that you're practicing acceptance for, okay, and I'm awake and, you know, no big deal. Because the more that we start thinking and flaring up a stress response and trying to resist that wake up, the more likely we are to kind of stay awake. Um, so a couple things. If you are waking up consistently in those early morning hours first, we do want to make sure that we're ruling out any possible sleep disorders. And out of Mount Sinai, they have actually quantified it as being over a hundred different possible sleep-wake disorders. So there are a lot of sleep-wake disorders that could be present that many people are undiagnosed for. Um, I see this a lot on wearables. People will like, you know, come up to me and show me, you know, their whoop or their aura ring. And there's all these ticks of a wake-up time. And some of them they might not even remember, some of them they do. Um, but if that's you, one, if we have some of those signs that could point to things like most commonly uh, sleep apnea, upper airway resistance syndrome, snoring, mouth breathing, et cetera, these things can make a huge difference in so many facets of sleep. It is a fatal disease if we think about sleep apnea because of the um, correlations between our cardiovascular health and so many other things that can just absolutely obliterate your health if we're not addressing that. So first addressing, making ruling out sleep-wake disorders. Um, and even if you already tested in the past, you can, and you were fine. Well, if you gained some weight, hormones shifted, certain th changes, you can develop those things later, or it can be augmented. Um, so ruling that out, then the glucose piece is another common one. But then another one of the why that this is happening is we want to also make sure that are we moving around our sleep-wake time a lot? That can really flare up more wake-up times throughout the course of the night. Um, but another kind of out of the box thing, it's much newer that I could mention. Now this is kind of in the gadget domain. Um, uh, but Somni is a really interesting new piece of tech and actually has, um, Dr. Matthew Walker, who wrote why we sleep, um, kind of, you know, the current rock star of sleep, if you will. Uh, so he's on the science advisory board for the Somni product and is using really transcranial electric stimulation. And you're using it before bed, so about 15 minutes before bed. But I mention it for wake-ups because uh, they were published in Frontiers and showed that it appeared to be uh, four times more effective than melatonin, uh, two times more effective than CBTI, and 1.5 times more effective than Ambien in its ability to help with falling asleep, staying asleep, and sleep duration. Um, so there's not many gadgets that I can point to that appear to maybe some um, interest or, you know, we We'd certainly need much more research and what have you, but I've also seen in practical application with some of my clients um, and myself, some improvements in certain sleep markers by using something like this and to minimize some of those wake-ups. So that'd be kind of a more out-of-the-box approach as well. Mm, excellent. Love it. Well, this has been great, Molly. I want to wrap up because I want to be mindful of your time, even though we could probably talk about 50 other things. <laughs> I, hear you. I think we covered some good stuff today. So uh, where can people go to learn more about your work? 
Sure. So at sleepisaskill.com, you can discover a lot of things um, to hopefully support you on your sleep journey. Uh, so there you can take a sleep assessment and you'll get tailored advice back around, or not quite advice, but tailored um, resources back around what you are dealing with with your sleep right now for free. Um, you can also sign up for our Sleep Obsessions newsletter that's been running every Monday for over five years. We've never missed a Monday. Love to have you on there. Uh, lots of, you know, kind of practical things that you can do to improve your sleep as well as sleep studies, research, sleep facts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then we have our sleep podcast. We're now ranked the number one sleep podcast on listen notes as of just recently. So yay. Um, so that's going to be free things that you can do to support your sleep beyond that. If you're really wanting to get additional support or just to up-level your results, uh, we have small group programs. Everyone is required to wear an aura ring throughout that program, just so you, you can see some of the improvements that you're making throughout the course of that. And that's an eight week long program. Um, and then we do have one-on-ones and then more one-off opportunities with uses booth, both, um, I know we talked about whoop, uh, so it uses whoop and Aura Ring as sleep audits. So we can audit your, um, sleep wearable trackers and then give you some things that you can do to uplevel those results. Love it. Awesome, Molly. Well, thank you so much for all the great information today and, uh, appreciate people tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you found it helpful, please share it along to anyone else you believe it can serve. You can submit your own question to be answered on the show by going to ryankennedyhealth.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show. Your feedback helps to support me on my mission to positively impact as many people as possible with this information. Please note the information depicted in this episode is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine.